you've hit play on The Screen Companion, a show about helping you to decide what to watch tonight. Last time, Andrew was with me to recommend Bond flicks for beginners. He's back, along with John, to get deeper into Britain's top fictional spy as we distill the Bond franchise, all 25 of them so far, into smaller mini-arcs. A true sequel to our beginner Bond episode, supposing you liked dipping your toe in but have no plans to watch them all, will steer you toward the best abridged versions of the series. As this is your first time talking about 007 on the show, John, tell us, who's your favorite Bond? Everyone is supposed to say Sean Connery from the get-go, right? If you're over 40. If you're over... <laughs> I mean, my oldest brother is about 12 years older than me, and he prefers Roger Moore, because that was his first Bond. My first Bond, I like Pierce Brosnan. He was the first one I was able to go see. I loved Goldeneye. Every kid my age, I think our age in general, got to play that game on Nintendo 64. So that was a huge part of it. But, like, how do you not say Sean Connery? Uh, pretty easily, because he gets kind of rapey. <laughs> he does. <laughs> and there's a whole racist one, too. <laughs> Andrew, what do you think are some of the downsides to the series? And maybe why people don't readily accept it into their hearts? How goofy it can get, because it, it can get really silly at times. I'll say Bond fans tend to think of Roger Moore as the goofy Bond. I do think that if you were trying to introduce someone to the series, I would never start with a Roger Moore film. I think you could argue that Timothy Dalton and Daniel Craig are the only Bonds that don't get silly, but you can still throw it in there a little bit. Because it's kind of the OG spy franchise, the cliches that we associate with the genre originate from Bond. Because they're the OG one, it's also, I think, the cliches stand out a little bit more. Would you say Moore is the most inconsistent Bond? I would say he's a very consistent Bond. He was just given very inconsistent movies. The tones of his movies shift a lot. I bought this Life magazine about No Time to Die, and they were just examining all the movies. Near the back of the magazine, it had a world map where it shows you exactly where Bond has been around the globe. Oh, it was a really interesting piece because you're like, he's the only Bond who's been here. He's the only Bond who's been here. So many of them have been to here at this point, and yada, yada. But they legitimately put a picture of the moon and then Roger Moore's face on it and just says space next to it. <laughs> that's Roger Moore. I was wondering how they handled that. Yeah, no, that's what they did. They just, <laughs> they just put him around the moon and said space. It's just his face right there. I think he's the most comedic of the Bonds, and they played into it way too much with some of his films. And John, if you had to do three movies of his that would paint him as a clown, what would they be? Oh, jeez. <laughs> One literally having him as a clown. <laughs> yes, uh, Octopussy for sure. Moonraker. That uh, false, false gravity runs in Moonraker. <laughs> He's like swinging his arms weird. Straight out of 2001. <laughs> yeah. And probably as violent as it was, as violent as it was turning, A View to a Kill is probably one of his goofier ones too. I like View to a Kill more than I like Octopussy. Octopussy is just a great title for silly. The title I take the most umbrage with. <laughs> the movie already sounds stupid. <laughs> View to a Kill at least has that title that's more of a serious veneer it somehow works I asked these guys to come on and come up with little mini arcs following these three basic rules I wanted them to limit it to three or four installments have at least two different Bond actors and only two movies on the list that are positioned in original release order so that way, we don't just do, like, Casino Royale through Skyfall. Try to switch it up a bit. John, let's start with you. Your list 
of personal favorites. What's the common thing among all these movies why you put them on your list? They fit the Bond formula of how things should go. They have a banger of a song. <laughs> the best way to get me to a Bond movie is to have a good song from the get-go. They all have something personal that I just really like about them. Personal to the way you saw them? Yeah. Bring us a little deeper into it and start with your first movie on your list. Alright, number one on the list is Goldfinger. Because why not? It set the tone. It set the formula. It's everything that people look for in a Bond movie started in Goldfinger. Andrew, what sticks out to you when that title is mentioned? If I had to do it from an outsider's perspective, I do think that the title Goldfinger is synonymous with one of the best in the franchise, if not the best, considered to be the best in the franchise. From a personal standpoint, uh, Goldfinger is synonymous with one of my personal favorites as well, and also I think it's the first Bond movie I've ever seen. It was my introduction to the franchise. Hmm. John, what personal moments does this dredge up for you? It was always on TV for some reason when I was growing up. TBS or one of those one of those channels obsessed with movie marathons, like they'd have 18 hours of Eastwood around like Thanksgiving or something for some reason, and then just show a Christmas story for 24 straight hours on Christmas. But they would always have the Bond marathons. This was the one that was always on. It was like your babysitter? Yeah, it was basically my babysitter, yeah. And our parents, they love Sean Connery. He's their Bond, especially my mom, because he's the handsomest man alive, according to her when she was younger. <laughs> Would you say Goldfinger is the movie everybody in your family could sit together and watch? Um, that's a whole psychology session there that I don't think they could sit together and watch any movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's limit it to you and your siblings. Yes, we could definitely watch Goldfinger. <laughs> if you're going to sell this to people totally brand new to the series... What are a couple of sexy details of Goldfinger that you think stand out among all the others? Well, sexy, you gotta go with pussy galore. <laughs> Sorry. It's, I think, the most marketable. Here's the cool villain. Here's his awesome henchman in Odd Job. Here's the Bond girl in pussy galore. It's got the gadgets. It's got the car. It's got everything that anybody thinks of Bond. And Andrew... If the statement is, Goldfinger is the quintessential Bond movie, can you think of any other that you'd put up alongside it, or do you really think Goldfinger is it? I think Thunderball kind of has that too, where it has a little bit of everything. I just don't think it's as good. It's so slow, though. It is very slow. I think The Spy Who Loved Me is also really slow, but that's a quintessential one, because that's arguably Moore's best film. Hmm. And that brings up something interesting that'll lead into John's second pick. The decades and decades of history and fandom surrounding the character, and just how you have people in their 80s, people in their 30s that are into this, and where there is a division in the fandom, different tastes, different values. When I'm thinking what a classic Bond fan would be into, I'm thinking Goldfinger. John, what do you think is the demarcation point where you'd say, okay, this is the modern era of Bond versus the classic? For the most part, it's just a new Bond. That's when you get a new era. Pierce Brosnan stepping in, it felt like this is the new modern Bond, and then they redid it with Craig, like this is the new modern Bond. I think every time they recast is them saying it's a new era. And Andrew, would you divvy it up the same way, or can you point to a movie that you feel like speaks to a modern Bond? Casino really is the most drastic shift in tone I think we've had with a new Bond. Every Bond who took over the role, you could still see where the guy before him could have done the role no problem, because the tone would fit. A lot of shared DNA. Yeah. With Casino Royale, this is Bond's first mission. He's brand new at this. That was the biggest switch. 
Leading into your second pick, John, what is it? It is, in fact, View to a Kill. Nice. Yeah. This is a newer personal favorite of mine, just because the ending takes place in San Francisco, and that's where I live. But I love... (laughs) (laughs) Every episode, John, it's like, oh, this character, he grew up in New York. I'm from New York. Oh, this movie takes place in SF. I'm in SF. (laughs) I think I only mentioned that on the Enterprise episode. That's the only way I was able to get into Enterprise was because the character Archer was from upstate New York and moved to San Francisco. (laughs) But I've always loved Christopher Walken. Growing up, when I discovered Christopher Walken, I was like, oh, he's such a good bad guy in every movie. He was also going on Saturday Night Live and being hilarious. And all this um, alternative information was coming out about him being like a trained dancer. And he was in these old movies where he was a tap dancer. And it's just like, this guy is awesome. And then I found out oh, he was in a Bond movie. It's like, got to watch it. And Grace Jones, we've got to give props to Grace Jones. I don't think she's leading lady material, but she's that special sauce it's good to have. Yes. And are there any caveats that you would want to impart to somebody before they sit down to watch this totally fresh? Just the silliness we discussed earlier. (laughs) Oh, uh, Bond driving the back of a fire truck? I don't remember the reason for that car chase. Maybe when Christopher Walken drops a guy out of a Zeppelin. (laughs) Why is he flying a Zeppelin in the Bay Area? Yeah. In general, why is he flying a Zeppelin? Another silly, it's Christopher Walken's death scene, where he's basically giggling the whole time. Oh, that's part of what I love about that performance. You just don't know (laughs) what he's thinking. (laughs) What's going through his head? He's giggling. (laughs) The doctor who made him in a lab... That was a weird backstory for the character, too. It was just like, basically, it was a eugenics project. It's like an actor's dream. Yeah, really. It's just like, you're so perfect. You are genetically engineered. Andrew, give me your hot take. What is Max Zorn's psychology? Why do you think he's giggling? (laughs) Other than being batshit crazy, um, I remember him laughing harder after the old guy was like, Max! Max! He kind of sounds weird. (laughs) And so, I don't know, maybe he thought the old guy just sounded silly. Maybe that's what he was laughing at. (laughs) 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 He just realized, like, ah, this guy is goofy. I looked up to him. It's like, oh, life's not going to get funnier than this, and he just lets go. (laughs) John, what's your third pick? I went with Skyfall, just because I love it, despite the Home Alone scene. This one, definitely, above all the rest, starts with the song. I love Adele. I definitely sat down one year and decided I was going to start making weird New Year's resolutions, and one of them was to become an Adele fan because of Skyfall. It worked out really well. I love Adele now, and I happen to think this song is amazing. And what's your personal connection to it? This was, like, the one I was able to get a bunch of people to go see with me in theaters. And they all universally agreed that they loved it. It was the same discussion with everybody after the movie. It was like, hey, besides the Home Alone scene, that was an amazing movie. Out of the four on your list, do you think Skyfall would be the easiest pitch to a new person? Yeah, I think I would. And how much of that would you say is unrelated to the fact that it's the most recent out of all these movies? What about the movie itself do you think is so successful? It's a good spy thriller in general. All the actors are good. You watch a lot of Bond movies, there's a Sky character somewhere who's just an awful actor. This one doesn't suffer from that. Where does this sit for you, Andrew, in your Bond list? Pretty high up there. If it's not top three, I'd say top five. And do you recall when you first saw the movie... This was one of my most memorable movie experiences, if not my most memorable. Oh, please, delve. (laughs) Usually, the Bond movies come out really close to my birthday, because they're kind of November releases. I don't remember exactly when it came out, but it was close to my birthday. I saw a midnight showing. I went with my brother and his missus, and we got there super early. We were the absolute first in line, and then I was watching people getting in line and they had like these posters what the hell like why do they have posters they're giving out posters and then 
my sister-in-law was uh, she said oh i didn't think you'd want to post her i was like are you nuts and i left the line (laughs) (laughs) i was like hold my spot i go to the front desk like hey like i see people with posters what's that about and then they went to bring me a poster so i had my poster (laughs) for the movie (laughs) it's just like a perfect birthday treat oh and here's another thing like usually in the movie theater i don't say things to people because you know people can get a little pissy if you tell them like hey knock something off but this guy was like on his phone now this guy could have beaten the shit out of me if he wanted to he's on his phone and it's like during the trailers and i leaned over i was like hey you're not gonna be doing that during the movie will you and he was like oh no man and then he puts his phone away and i didn't have to worry about it (laughs) it was the perfect movie experience dude like i mean really and then on top of everything the movie gave me everything I'd ever wanted to see in a Bond movie and more. It was great. It was brilliant. Wow. I wish I could have had more experiences like that at the cinema. I feel like I was right there with you and a little incredulous. You saw this in the L.A. area? You told somebody with a phone or asked them, are you going to still have that on during the movie? And they actually politely put it away? No way. <laughs> when I look back at what I said, that was pretty sassy of me. you channeled bond you went with the bond sass yeah i did he had every right to just slap me (laughs) (laughs) now the final movie in john's list is what it's goldeneye baby's first bond growing up i was able to go see that one in theaters the n64 game friends would get together and just play it Everyone had the no-odd-job rule, because he was shorter than everybody. (laughs) They didn't have headshots in the game, so it's just like, either missed, or you hit him in the head and he would survive. (laughs) If he was crouching, you didn't need a gun, you just come up with people and slap them to death. I remember how frustrated people would get during multiplayer sessions. (laughs) (laughs) It was crazy. Arguably Brosnan's best one, too, of that whole franchise. Yeah, I would agree. It's one of the best Bond movies, if you look at it, I think, from a story and just craft and art of film angle. I tried to get you guys to think about the order that you put them in. John, why did you pick the order of Goldfinger, A View to a Kill, Skyfall, Goldeneye? Goldfinger sets the tone. It lets you know. And then View to a Kill gives you some silliness before it drops you into Skyfall to let you know it's really serious. And then Goldeneye, specifically I went last because Judy Dench's M, her first film was Goldeneye. And so she's basically herself, if you watch it in that order. Ah, old M is gone, and now coming to Goldeneye, and you have to deal with the fact that there's a new M, but it just happens to be the same actor. (laughs) (laughs) The younger, newer model? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It was like, ah, we cloned her and replaced her. Moving on to Andrew's list. This is an interesting departure from the first list because this one is sticking to a theme. And even though it shares a couple movies with John's list, because it's more of an overarching narrative, it does put it in a new light. Andrew, what was your theme for your list? kind of a depressing one um an agent outliving his usefulness i reworded it slightly and called him a cold war casualty both artistic titles what's the first movie on your list from russia with love how does it start this outliving his usefulness vibe from russia with love is the second movie in the franchise these movies were coming out at the height of the cold war In fact, if I'm not mistaken, this movie came out the same year as the Cuban Missile Crisis. I hope I'm not wrong about that, because that should have been 1963. 1963. This is height of the Cold War, and although it's not specifically the Soviet Union who's the villain, it's Spectre, the primary individual villain of the movie is a Soviet military colonel with Red Grant, played by a future man to be eaten by a shark, Robert Shaw. (laughs) She recruits him to kill Bond, and then there's a Soviet secretary who she enlists to seduce Bond. Kind of a classic spy thriller where, hey, you know, we think this is going to be a setup, but 
we want you to grab what's essentially just the Russian Enigma machine so that we can decode all their messages because we're going to lose this Cold War. And then it's just globe-trotting adventure for Bond to beat the Ruskies and Spectre. Is this him top form, or is it in the middle of your list? This is him being the Cold War agent he was meant to be, because this is when the Soviet Union was their most powerful, so they would have been their most formidable at this point. So this is Bond at his most useful. It's the tightest story, I think, of Connery's tenure. Very straightforward. Second half of the movie is just a train ride, right? They stop at cool locales. He is definitely most competent. I love the fight scenes in this and in general of Connery's era because they're all super realistic. It's not two men putting on a martial arts show as much as it's two guys struggling for their lives. And sometimes you got to grab just a random limb and hope something happens, and sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> I don't think any of his fight scenes last more than 10 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember when I was younger, I didn't have an understanding that a man in Bond's position would just want to like take people out quickly and not have these long, drawn-out fights. There are two people in that movie where he throws them on the ground and just kicks them in the face before they can get back up. <laughs> <laughs> When I was a kid, I was like, man, that's lame. He's just kicking him in the face. But now, like, as an adult, I would totally just stomp someone if they were down and I was <laughs> fighting for my life. <laughs> I got spying to do. Bam, get out of here. <laughs> I can't have people pulling the alarm. They're getting the shoe. It's just... <laughs> the difference being Connery does it from a place of dominance. Andrew, you do it from a place of desperation. <laughs> Stay down, please, stay down. <laughs> Pure cowardice, dude. There's a big difference. Please don't get up and, oh, don't get up. Damn it, you broke my heel. Stop it. <laughs> Talking about train sequences, Andrew, do you think From Russia With Love has a better train sequence than Spectre? Yes. Although I do think Spectre has a great train fight. There's something about the one in From Russia with Love. Two dudes just beating the crap out of each other and legit trying to like just kill each other with whatever they can get their hands on. That's the OG train fight scene, and it's really hard to top it. And moving on to your second film on your list, it is... The Living Daylights. And how does it fit into the arc following From Russia with Love? He's still a Cold War agent, because um, the Soviet Union is still standing, but it's at the point in history where it's been weakening for some time. He's at the point where Bond's not getting those big missions like he used to, or steal the encoding machine and such like that. Now he's getting the missions of like, oh, you know, the Soviet Union, we all know it's going down. This Russian's trying to defect. Go get him. And the only reason why this whole thing turned into a big to-do is because the defection was a ploy, wasn't even working for the Soviets that moment, he was just in business for himself. As a historical note, Bond goes to Afghanistan and you see the Mujahideen fighting. That's what drove him out. That was a huge failure on the Russians' part. You see the Soviet Union a lot weaker at this point. This Cold War spy, you know, he was doing a chauffeur's mission at the beginning of the movie that just happened to turn into something bigger. John, what do you think of The Living Daylights as it relates to Cold War themes? It went for a more realistic approach with who Bond is as a person. Timothy Dalton, he lacked the humor that people wanted from a Bond. Yeah, he was kind of a spy. Now he's just killing a bunch of drug runners and... They only see him as a killer. He has outlived his usefulness as a spy. Isn't there one point where he's threatening to shoot a woman who's half naked? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And he has no problem with it at all. I'm on a mission. I'm doing interrogation here. I'm pointing a gun at a half naked lady. I don't care. <laughs> the sooner he finishes his job, he can go to the bar. With both of Dalton's movies having to do with drugs, in The Living Daylights, speaking to your point about showing the Soviet Union in its downturn, it is centered around a general who is using his position for drug smuggling 
and it just shows the dysfunction within their own ranks, and it's really no longer anything to do with the politics anymore. It's Bond against the Russians in the sense that one of the main villains is a Russian, who is a Soviet military leader, but what does he really do at this point except look out for himself, because the writing was on the wall at that point in history. And there's a gray area in that movie, too, where it's the two sides coming together to take out this Weasley general. And I don't recall that sort of ambiguity. Well, I guess um, Honor Majesty's Secret Service teaming up with, uh, what's his name, Draco? That guy was in the criminal underworld. Can you think of other examples? There was the Spy Who Loved Me where he teamed up with the KGB agent. They were kind of after the same noble goal, I would say. And in your agent outliving his usefulness, where does your next pick fall into his life at that point? Goldeneye. Cheers. He's the Bond who still has a chance to fit in the modern world. He's still useful in the sense of being a spy, but his original enemy and mission is completed, so he has to find a new way in the new technological world. With your arc, it feeds into it, having there be a new M and a new money penny. It's like everybody's being replaced, everybody's new. The movie opens with the dam sequence, and it's nine years before the events of the film, so the Soviet Union's still going, not strong at that point, but it's still going. The movie still has the connection to the Soviet Union where one of the primary villains is a Russian general who was promoted nine years ago from the first time that Bond tangled with him. This being the post-Soviet era, General Oromov, I believe, his whole shtick is that he wants to do a coup in Russia, doesn't he, and take power? Yeah, like Oromov wants the glory days of the Soviet Union He's feeling held back by the new guard. Hey, look, that's over. We're not those people anymore. Definitely with the EMP blasts and kind of resetting the world's technology would bring Ormov closer to his goal of the coup and going back to the way things were. So this being the first film to come out after the fall of the Berlin Wall, John, I'm curious what you think about the supporting cast for Bond and in Goldeneye, like we mentioned, a new M, a new money punny. They did stick with keeping Desmond Llewellyn as Q. Do you think it would have been better if those side characters had been swapped out with every new Bond? Or do you like that some of these actors stuck around? I like the continuity. It helps in this one, especially because the theme of this movie is that, well, USSR is gone. He even works with Hagrid, who is a Russian mob boss. They have the discussion about how everything's changed. I hear M is woman now. Q's just doing his job. He never cared about any of that. He's the old guard who's moved on. Yeah, we've moved on. We're good. And so the final movie on your list, Andrew. It is Skyfall. And by this point in the arc, where is Bond at? Uh, he's old. I mean, that's one of the central themes of the movie. And it's funny the way they did it, because the movie itself is kind of a return to the older formula and the classics. I don't want to say they poke fun at it by making Bond a dinosaur in this movie, but they definitely make it a plot point that, hey, you're old, you're out of your time, you're not in your element anymore, Cold War's over, what are you doing? beginning of the movie a mission goes horribly wrong and then he comes back he's in no physical shape to be out in the field again by this point there's a new money penny there's a new q who's a kid essentially compared to bond and he gives him sass about being old and the villain is a former mi6 agent but one who has kept up with the times in a sense and uses technology to his advantage in a way that Bond cannot do it. As Q puts in their meeting, every once in a while, uh, someone needs to pull a trigger, or however he put it. Right, yeah, in that museum scene. It's essentially acknowledged at that point that we're keeping you around because 
I can't shoot someone, but you can. He's retired at the beginning of the movie. He's happy to have been dead. Young, eager people don't just do that. A young, eager Bond would have came back and been like, I'm not dead. I haven't been drinking Heineken's in the Caribbean. I'm not dead yet. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like singing. Um, <laughs> old, long in the tooth Bond, he convinced himself he was happy in the Caribbean, drinking his not-vodka martinis. Plus, um, that whole scene of him trying to pass the physical was such a beautiful scene of he can't hit the target anymore, he can't do any of the physical stuff, but then he walks up on the target and <laughs> hits it multiple times to prove he's like, I still got the medal for it. Yeah, when he's like 20 feet away, big deal. <laughs> That's where Ray finds us, it's like, alright, this guy can still pull the trigger. I'll just send him on suicide missions, whatever. Well, and it adds another layer in Judy Dench's last movie. Her M believes in Bond in a way that I don't think she would have in Casino Royale or maybe even Quantum of Solace, where she's willing to doctor the results of his physical just to get him back out there because she believes in him so much. Quick trivia round, guys. Can you come up with movies where Bond has either been presumed dead or has been out of action for an extended period of time? No time to die. Die another day. Does that count? He was imprisoned. Yeah. He faked his death and you only live twice. Daniel Craig's Bond retired three times. <laughs> At the end of Casino, he tendered his resignation, but that was short-lived. And then, yeah, beginning of Skyfall, he noped out of there, and then he quit at the end of Spectre, beginning of No Time to Die. You know, with James Bond, at least how he was written by Ian Fleming, he was always, ah, you know, screw it, if I get fired, I get fired. He was always just kind of on the cusp of, I can dip out at any time, at least in the books. In the movies, you don't really get that sense until you get to Timothy Dalton. Moving on to the final list, my list. I decided to go with a Bond love story where we really look at Bond's relationship to women because he is this playboy seducer type. The first one I went with was The World Is Not Enough because the villain, Electra King, she tricks Bond and shows him the danger of falling for women. It's like this femme fatale part of my list. To my shock, guys, am I wrong? Is she the only female villain mastermind in the whole franchise? I think mastermind, yes. Yeah, that's so crazy that it took so long to have one, and then in Daniel Craig's era, especially, there were none? What's up? Honestly, it's kind of hard to top her. They did really well with her as the mastermind. You could argue that, and from Russia with love, there's a female mastermind. Although the mastermind is essentially Blofeld, who's pulling all the strings, the main villain is Colonel Kleb. Yeah, but I would counter that her interactions with Bond, aren't they really just limited to the final scene? Yes. I think like she's aware of him and plots against him, but it isn't until the very end where they actually put their dukes up. So maybe technically I'll give it to you, but if so, can we agree that she's a pretty lame villain? Uh, she has those knife shoes. I wouldn't mess with her. Ah, oh, more of that sexism back then. <laughs> How do we make her deadly, guys? Well, it's got to be in her shoes. <laughs> well, dude, you also have to remember that actress was like, what, like five foot flat? <laughs> you got to make her a threat somehow. In that sequence, you could totally, like Connery towered over that woman. And she was like 50 years old. And she's old. So it's like... <laughs> <laughs> and she's old. And she's old. She's tiny and she's old. It's like my mom going after Sean Connery, dude. She needs knife shoes. I don't know. There's that scene of Goldfinger where that little old lady pulled out a machine gun and she's the one who captured Bond during his attempted escape. <laughs> yeah. But she also had a machine gun. <laughs> she had a machine gun. She almost fell over. I think it was comical. <laughs> I do love that part, yeah. John, what did you think of Sophie Marceau playing the villain in The World Is Not Enough? She was great. Um, I remember how much, it's going to sound weird, how much I enjoyed the torture scene when he's on that. <laughs> <laughs> You're revealing quite a lot about yourself, sir. 
Um. Oh, dude, one more turn, she breaks his neck. Oh, that's hot. (laughs) (laughs) I'll be in my room, guys. (laughs) It was a good scene in filmmaking. I don't know if I could backpedal from that one. Why try? It was hot. No. (laughs) It, um... If it wasn't a espionage, I'm torturing you because I'm evil situation, Bond probably might have enjoyed it. Yeah. He was in job mode right there. He's just like, ah, crap. This would have been awesome. Yeah. How often do you get to spend time in a torture chair? So we go from the femme fatale in World is Not Enough to On Her Majesty's Secret Service. This is where Bond finds an equal partner in Tracy... He falls in love with her, she helps him on the mission, he even marries her, and then by the end of the movie some bad stuff happens. But I like this progression where, okay, he's sleeping with women, and even during the movie, he's having all those dalliances with those women at that clinic thrown by Blofeld. He's like going into every woman's room late at night, not being a creeper. (laughs) But even among all that tale, he's like, you know, I'm ready to settle down. Tracy's won my heart. So it's fun to see that progress in his relationship to women. John, what do you think of Tracy? I liked her a lot, actually. She had a really good arc. Was it for your eyes only when he visited the grave? Yeah. And then Blofeld hijacked the helicopter because it was a video game. (laughs) 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 Then he got scooped up and... Tossed down a chimney. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Also mentioned in The Spy Who Loved Me. And, uh... License to Kill. She's big Bond lore, even if she only had the one movie. Because he's just a womanizer. Except it backfires on him in Brosnan's era a lot. (laughs) (laughs) He takes a lot of guff in the Brosnan era from ladies, doesn't he? Zena on a top. Right? She's just squeezing dudes to death with her uh, thick thighs. Which aren't really that thick. No. (laughs) A toit lady, if you will. (laughs) What a missed opportunity. I liked Diana Riggs so much. I wish they had done, like, a little mini-trilogy with her before they offed her character. How great would it have been to see Bond actually take a movie or two where maybe he's not doing the spy stuff, but he gallivants a little bit with his lady love, and we see them get into trouble and find their way out of situations. But no, it's a one and done for her, sadly. She's immediately killed by Telly Savalas, and his old lady with the machine gun. And then my third pick is Quantum of Solace. If I'm loosely making these movies fit my arc... By this point, Secret Service, his wife got killed. Quan of Solace, he's raw, he's sad. Never mind that technically he's sad for a different woman in Quan of Solace. Let's just focus on the emotions. It still works, yeah. He's emotionally wounded, lost the love of his life. He doesn't have love on his mind. I think he sleeps with one woman in that whole movie. And the female co-lead, Camille... She's just a friend. They never have sex. And in that movie, her purpose is she's the support group after he's dealt with that trauma from the other movie. She's in the same boat. She recently lost someone. She's there specifically for revenge. She's on her license to kill kick. Yeah, they're commiserating. Andrew, do you feel Quantum of Solace is the weakest out of his? I'd say Spectre is. With Quantum of Solace, it was the first time I remember being disappointed by a Bond movie when I saw it in theaters. Die Another Day was not good, and I knew it wasn't the best when I was watching it, but I still felt very satisfied with it. Like, I didn't feel let down. With Quantum, I felt let down. You know, you're coming off a Casino Royale, so that's a really hard act to follow. But every time I've watched it since, it gets better and better. It's pretty different, but it's a very tight story. It's well acted. I wish it was edited better. It can jump around just way too much. The action's great, and it was a really refreshing twist that he didn't bone the girl at the end of the movie because it fit with their characters in the relationship and didn't just force that to happen. 
This is, I'd say, of the five. I need to watch No Time to Die again to say for sure, but I would put this at number three. Every time I watch it, Quan of Solace is so refreshing to me out of Craig's oeuvre. The fact that it's the shortest of his movies, just over 100 minutes long, very tight. A very tight octopusy. (laughs) 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 I was re-watching Skyfall last night, and his movies, they're all so super long. When they're regularly two and a half hours long, and I can get a Daniel Craig Bond that's under two hours, it's automatically my favorite of his. His movies are long, I will say, but I didn't feel the length with Casino or Skyfall. I felt it with the other ones for sure. I would postulate it as they take a minute to breathe. Some of the best complaints of Quantum I've heard is that it doesn't take time to breathe. Like, you have no time to digest what just happened because you're on to the next thing. When I was making this list, guys, I was really thinking about a new person watching the series. These aren't necessarily my favorite Bond movies, but this particular assortment does get across a nice Bond and ladies story. So I went with Spectre for my last movie, mostly because the first one on my list, Femme Fatale, then his equal partner, then he has a support group, and now this is him dealing with monogamy, maturity, Bond falls in love with Madeline Swan, he falls in love with the same woman again, (laughs) he gets his second chance. And this time, by the end of the film, he walks away with the girl, And if you forget No Time to Die, they live happily ever after the end. (laughs) (laughs) John, when you were watching Spectre, what did you think of the pumped-up female character? In the grand scheme of things, she was the least of my worries about that movie. (laughs) (laughs) I don't like that everything has to be so interconnected. Sometimes chaos can happen. I don't think she needed to be Mr. White's daughter. I think that's my biggest problem with Spectre. The whole, I was the architect of all your pain. Uh, Come on, no. Yeah. One of the best actors of the generation, and you give him like, just the most bland stuff. I feel like it takes away from Silva and Skyfall to say, oh no, he was actually working for this other guy. Exactly. <laughs> Bond's allowed to have a life outside the villain. <laughs> He's allowed to have a life outside of... His brother? Evil brother Blofeld? Like, uh, come on. Foster brother Blofeld. And I don't even remember the biggest reason why he hated James so much other than just like, you were always better than me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right? He starts his evil organization out of headiness. (laughs) Yeah, why does he still have a self-esteem issue considering he's created possibly the greatest criminal enterprise ever? As British criminals go, like, you've won. Now, Andrew, for Craig's tenure, how important do you think it was to resolve the feelings that got started in Casino Royale with Ava Green's character? Do you think it was important to have a real female influence, a love interest come back into his life? Not really. With... Quantum of Solace, it didn't wrap it up in a neat bow, right? Like, it wasn't, okay, he's untraumatized, this is great. But it did wrap up the story. It gave him the closure that he needed and was looking for. Although it is nice that he was able to fall in love again, I didn't feel like it was necessary to do that. One of my biggest gripes with Spectre is I didn't feel like they had a lot of chemistry was even more apparent to me in No Time to Die. With Craig and Ava Green and Casino, the chemistry was undeniably there from the moment they're introduced. And then with Honor Majesty's Secret Service, even Lazenby was able to find chemistry with, I mean, who wouldn't have chemistry with Diana Rigg, really? I didn't think it was necessary to have them fall in love again, although it was nice for the story. It never felt supernatural. That takes it down a bit. Supernatural, two words. Two words, yes, sorry. I did put them together. It did not feel very natural to me, what I should have said. The vampire subplot seemed weird. (laughs) 
Looking at Craig's five movies, compared to Tracy, his biggest loves were both very damsel in distress types, which don't really make sense to me with Craig's Bond. I think he was getting swept up in the job. His first assignment, the woman who's there, she is trying to make him fall in love because she's looking for the double cross. So I think the issue was he needed to move on. And then again, once he's moved on, he's swept up in the next assignment. It's the first girl he sees who's probably in the same, like, I'm trying to make him do this so I can double cross him, but she doesn't ultimately double cross him. <laughs> he's the victim here, man. I think he's just looking for a way out. Like we talked about earlier, he doesn't want to be a spy. Yeah, he went through all that trouble to kill the two dudes. Like, he beat a man to death in the toilet and then had that fun little quip session in the office. And then his first assignment was like, this is horrible. I got bashed in the balls a lot and shot and poison. I think I'm going to retire immediately. They just get married as soon as possible. The first femme fatale they meet, they're gone. Andrew, do you think that Madeline works better only in Spectre, or ultimately do you think it's best to have the twofer of Spectre and no time to die for her character? You needed the twofer Bond's character. I would not have been upset if they ended Spectre with her not being in a position to come back. Um... <laughs> <laughs> That's a really nice way of saying you wish she was killed. No. <laughs> <laughs> I wish she was dead. <laughs> Honestly, dude, like, Spectre, I saw it once in the theaters and I really haven't wanted to rewatch it since. It's very labored. It is. If you took out that data gathering subplot, you could have ended the movie after the Blofeld base explosion where they look at each other. It could cut to credits. It was the coolest thing that they had on the screen in that movie was that explosion. And the movie had me up to that point. But then it keeps going, and I'm like, why is it still going? Oh, they have that thing they have to wrap up. It tacked on an extra, like, 30 minutes to the movie that just didn't need to be there. Well, I think we've gotten the point across that none of us are fans of Spectre, the film. However, looking at my Bond love story list... If you're coming in as a new viewer, this list and being capped by Spectre, do you think it helps raise the enjoyment level of Spectre? <laughs> I'm going to say yes, simply because anything, any thought experiment raises the uh, uh, enjoyment of it. It needs all the help it can get. It's not bad. I just think that at a point, the movie went from a solid nine and a half to like a six real quick. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. I'm just thinking back to what Andrew was saying. As far as how much he doesn't like Madeline, it made me think of him as a Roman emperor at a coliseum when they're having the uh, gladiatorial games. <laughs> it's time for him to yay or nay, and she shows up. Sir, what do you think we should do with her? I would prefer she does not come back. <laughs> <laughs> Lions. <laughs> I also don't think it helped that, like, at this point, Craig's looking old and she's clearly much younger than him. Yeah, like half his age. The writing was probably poor for the character, too, because they were going for hot but broken. Like, yeah, that's such a weird trope, I think, for a lot of writers who just don't understand women. I'm not saying I understand women. But I am the only one currently married in this episode. That's true. <laughs> you should bring your wife on to see if she agrees with you and uh, be like, hmm, m'lady, did they write her poorly? I say yay. <laughs> I say yay. Let's break for a sec so I can mention a few things about the podcast. We're on Podbean, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, YouTube, and more. Please like, comment, and subscribe. Reach us directly via the screen companion at gmail.com. Let us know which of our recommendations worked for you and what topics you'd like us to do next. Also, if you want to support TSC with a few bucks, 
head on over to Amazon and get the host's sci-fi novel, Traversal, The Weight of Worlds. After hearing me complain so much, perhaps you're curious how I'd tell a story. Available in both digital and print formats. And thank you for listening. Moving on, our next segment, Bond Bingo. I would be really surprised if this had never been done before, but because I've done no research into it, I'm just going to claim I started it. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So this is where we pivot a bit. The first part of the show was getting new fans into it. Well, here's a segment for us dinosaurs that have enjoyed this stuff for far too long. How can we watch this and have new things to say or new ways to enjoy it? Bond bingo. It's exactly like it sounds. I made bingo cards with squares that mentioned certain tropes that happen a lot, plot details that come up all the time. We each picked a film, and we wanted to see who could get a bingo first. The center square was Bond, James Bond, because I think that might be the only thing in every single movie. Any of you guys not get a bingo? I got a bingo. I got three. Well, I hope you recorded when you got your first one. I got the first one, and I recorded the last one. We could talk about the first and the last, depending on the semantics we want to go into. Because I'm very sure that I came in last place, let's start with my two movies. Yes, two movies, because the first one failed for me. (laughs) (laughs) Because I'm not a huge Roger Moore guy, I figured let me have a reason to revisit him. So I chose The Spy Who Loved Me, and I never got more than three hits in a row. Here are the two that just shocked the hell out of me. Bond's mission helper gets killed. That did not happen in this film. Never have I wanted a mission helper to die as badly as Manuela in Brazil. (laughs) She gets attacked by Jaws, and he's slowly trying to bite her neck in an alley, and Bond is taking his time getting to her to help her out. And the whole time I'm thinking, please just get her, Jaws, get her! (laughs) I need this! (laughs) And it just didn't happen, and it deflated me. And then the second one that really shocked me, get this, the 007 theme never plays during an action scene in this movie. It's nuts. Oh. It teased the hell out of me. There's a moment leading up to the action scene where the theme plays, and then literally, once the action starts, the theme cut. (laughs) (laughs) And I had pencil in hand just ready to check it off. I was like, damn it! (laughs) Roger Moore, man, as much as I don't like him... That's not to say he didn't have some great qualities. He could deliver lines, comedic lines, in such a beautifully deadpan style that not only was I laughing at the performance, but loving him at the same time. He's perfect delivering those one-liners. Connery was definitely more of a killer, but still charming. Roger Moore, I think, was more charming than a murderer. (laughs) I think the only one who comes close to Roger Moore's comedy chops would be Brosnan. But sometimes with him, it comes off a little too silly. Whereas Roger Moore, his movies are so silly around him. He's not even really being silly. It's just kind of like, oh, so he is being deadpan, but in a very ludicrous situation. It works. And his interplay with Barbara Bach was awesome. A little slow in parts, but I really loved going to Egypt and seeing the pyramids. Like with a lot of Bond movies... It's a great movie until you realize what the villain wants, and then it takes the piss out of it for me. (laughs) That's the, he wants to live underwater, right? He's the under the sea guy. If that villain just wanted to steal some money, then this movie would have shot up in the ranking for me. (laughs) (laughs) Nope, he wants to live under the sea. Everything's better down where it's wetter. What I don't understand is, like, he he honestly could just do that already. Yeah, right? Like, let humanity kill itself. Yeah, like, he could have just noped out of humanity and had his peaceful life, but he was like, nope, I hate all of you enough 
<laughs> Plus, looking at the logistics of his evil plot. So, okay, he releases the nukes, starts a world war. Conceivably, everything gets devastated. I don't think he actually built his underwater city yet. Doesn't that make things a lot harder when trade routes are disrupted and nobody's manufacturing anything anymore? Yeah, if he's got nowhere to go pre-nuclear war, he's kind of screwed. Plus, it's going to kill the ocean. I don't think he understands that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's going to kill all the algae, which basically feeds everything. But from a film criticism level, microscopes are Roger Moore's biggest enemy. <laughs> you don't want to look too closely at any of it. <laughs> My second movie, because I was so frustrated at not getting a bingo, I went for another Roger Moore, and I went with Moonraker. Oh, you put yourself through it. Jaws double bill? Yeah, it was. And this time, fellas, I did get a bingo. And I achieved it with three minutes to spare. Oh, wow. Oh, dude. I got it at the two hour and three minute mark. And the thing that put me over the top was when they made a reference to the queen at the very end. <laughs> when I was so sad thinking, Jesus, do I need to watch another one of these? I can't not have a bingo. And in this one, he doesn't have a mission helper that gets killed. That would have helped me out a lot sooner. Also, Bond never flirts with Moneypenny. And it's like once Lois Maxwell reached a certain age, they're like, we can't have him flirting with her. <laughs> Weren't they the same age, though? Yeah. Hmm. Yes, that's the joke. <laughs> ah, touche, touche. I'm sorry. That went over my head. This was my second watch in both cases. Whereas Spy Who Loves Me... I can enjoy at least watching it, if not think it's a very good Bond movie. Moonraker, it's really low on my list. And everybody listening, Bond Bingo will make you have a better time watching it. But outside of that, I don't return to it too much. Um, John, do you? I do, actually. I know a couple people who it's like their favorite because of the campiness. They're not big Bond fans, so like, yeah, that one's the best. What was your film for Bond Bingo? Goldfinger. Did you strike Rich? The first time I struck Rich was 46 minutes into the movie. Damn. Wow. Okay, what are your squares? Bond flirts with Money Penny. That happens in the first 10 minutes. The title song is instrumental. That happens in the first, like, half hour. Villain kills his own henchman, which it goes in line with another square that doesn't count part of my bingo is a woman Bond sleeps with dies, dips in gold. Yeah. The first uh, Bond swims, skis, or surfs, uh, or snowboards, that's the opening scene, is Bond swimming into a... He had a fake bird on his head, and I almost, I almost circled Bond goes undercover, but I was like, no, I can't. I would have let it slide, because I'd be like, this cheeky bastard. <laughs> 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 Thought about it for a good minute. So many things happen. Half of my bingo card came from that opening scene. Uh, what was my last bingo? Oh. The mission helper. The mission helper. The girl who was dipped in gold, her sister helps Bond storm Goldfinger's secret lair there in Switzerland. And then she gets murked by Oddjob via hat. Bond's trying to help her escape. <laughs> he gets her killed. But the semantics here is she was trying to kill Goldfinger and Bond wasn't. I'm deciding whether or not I want to be petty because when I think of a mission helper, I think of like Manuela from The Spy Who Loved Me, where she's specifically there to help Bond. It's not like a passenger he picked up on the way. She didn't help him too much, really. Like, they just kind of got in his car and tried to get away. Like, it was almost... She wasn't a mission helper. If anything, she ruined the mission. She definitely ruined the mission. Yeah. I'm going to say that one's a no-go. I did wrestle with that myself, but my original intention, because, you know, I didn't want to get too wordy in these squares. Supposing Camille got killed in Quantum of Solace, there's a difference between an ally versus somebody actually specifically there 
and it's their mission to help Bond's mission. So. Ah, you petty bastards. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, it's because Andrew gave me a Finsky before the episode started. (laughs) (laughs) This is a conspiracy. This is a witch hunt. (laughs) (laughs) Well, then, Andrew, what was your Bond bingo film? Tomorrow Never Dies. What were the squares that led you to victory? Possible victory. Now, don't judge me too harshly, because I did have to rely on the Bond, James Bond square. I'm going to start from the bottom, because mine's a vertical row on your card. Okay. I'm going to start from the bottom, because I will also say I feel like my top pick is also dicey. Okay, let's do it. There's a reference to the Queen slash His Majesty when they're in the car and he's getting the mission briefing. And Money Penny says, Queen and Country, James. A woman Bond sleeps with dies. I mean, Terry Hatcher. Yep. He says Bond, James Bond, uh, when he's introducing himself to everybody at the party. Terrible spy. This is my real name. That was a scene in Goldfinger where the Goldfinger's like, yeah, I know who you are. You introduce yourself. He uses his real name a lot in these undercover operations. And then Bond quips before or after killing someone. He makes the backseat driver joke after ejecting that dude from the jet. And then Bond makes a sexual innuendo. Now, the... That should have been the center square. (laughs) (laughs) Even if he said, I'm going to get ahead of this and be like, even if he said just like, hello, that's probably a sexual innuendo from Bond. (laughs) Just a basic handshake. (laughs) But let's hear it. The sexual innuendo Bond made that I think counts, but I will be understanding if you say it's a no-go, is when he's in Oxford and he's fooling around with that lady and Moneypenny calls him and he says, I'm over here at Oxford brushing up on a little Danish. The character's Danish, right? The character he's canoodling with? That's absolutely innuendo. Okay, all right. But... I'm going to say it's not out of spite. (laughs) And I was expecting that. (laughs) I'm glad that Frank's here to be the impartial person. But the sexual innuendo, it it works. Because, yes, he is brushing up on a little Danish, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) It just depends on how intense you want the innuendo to be. Because, like, in The World Is Not Enough, he sees the quote-unquote secretary looking real good, and he says, I'm sure her figures are rounded. That's in your face. This brushing up on a little Danish, I'm afraid it's too subtle. But I don't think it is, but I leave it up to Frank. I'm going to say it counts. (laughs) However, I say it with a little bit of sadness. (laughs) Out of all the great sexual innuendo, the remarks he makes... That's got to be like the weakest one I could think of. What was the time it took you to get that bingo? 55 minutes. There you go, guys. 55 minutes is currently the record. Did it surprise you any squares that you really thought you would have checked off but didn't happen once? A trapment for Bond kills someone else. That one surprises me. Title song as an instrumental doesn't happen as far as I remember. There are a few things that you would think are Bond staples that don't happen in a movie that I would consider to be chock full of Bond staples. John, as far as your enjoyment of these movies, considering the numerous times before that you've seen them, did Bond Bingo add any flavor for you? It did, actually. Especially with Goldfinger, because you got this one square. Bond uses the gadget to escape. There are multiple scenes in that movie where he uses gadgets to get out of a bind, but he's immediately recaptured. That was super <laughs> frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> that seat where he's got the henchman, he's got the henchman in the passenger seat, right? And the guy's like, "You drive," and he's like, "Well, that seems like a terrible idea." So he uses the ejector seat. It's like, ha ha! He escapes, but then old lady with machine gun, so he's not escaped yet. Uh, and then, um, the one scene where he does escape, 
He escapes his jail cell to go spy on the uh, exposition scene for Operation Grand Slam. He doesn't use a gadget. He just hides in the ceiling. <laughs> <laughs> that he kicks that guy in the face. Yeah, he kicks the guy in the face, and it was just so frustrating. <laughs> it was just like, just, I need, give me that square, come on. There's a lot of, like, over-examinations because of Bond Bingo. <laughs> you bring up a good point. Bond does seem kind of inept a few times in this movie. As great as it is, like, that car, at the end of the day, he was undone by a mirror. He crashed through a wall because he saw himself coming at him. <laughs> Like a raccoon. <laughs> well, congratulations to you, Andrew, on winning this inaugural edition of Bond Bingo. Perhaps someday we'll play another round, but for now, you are the man. <laughs> Boo, I say. I'm glad to have won on a technicality that knocked John out of the running. <laughs> <laughs>